Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and change agents who give us their messages of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. And today we're talking to physician, mom, and coach, Maggie Kang. Do you ever still feel stuck or run down, full of guilt? Maggie understands. She finally sought help and learned how to turn obstacles into opportunities and how to create a new narrative. She's here right now teaching you how to do the same. You get to ditch all your what-if scenarios and get aligned with your best self and create your new story as well. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Maggie. Thank you. So I know physicians aren't generally known for letting their guard down. So what had you finally do the, okay, I give, I need help <laughs> and really completely shift your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right. It's so true. We don't typically, well, I personally never put my guard down and I rarely show emotion. And so it wasn't by choice. I felt like something happened when my daughter got sick and it just completely upended my life. And I felt like I had to do something to sort of get back on track. And I think I just had to really dig deep to figure out how we're gonna survive it. It was a really tough time when she was diagnosed with neuromyelitis optica at age nine. Yeah, I know she was like you know, playing sports and doing all that. So when you guys were in the hospital, I have this vision of you like being in control, taking care of everything, like doctor, mom, like just, you know, you've got your son at home, like everything. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh God. That day was really, really tough. I, I don't so, just, I mean, in general, like, cause she wasn't just there a day she was there. Right. But the first day I think that I took her to the ER was just indescribable really, because as you alluded to prior to that, her first nine years was, she was robustly healthy and really like so healthy. She never even was on antibiotics. She never had missed a day of school she just fully embraced life. And it was so shocking when she started getting sick and I thought, oh, okay, so this is just maybe a GI bug or a flu. You know, we were in the middle of winter, but it was just really unlike her. So that day that I took her to the emergency room was the day that I won't ever forget. Yeah. So we got there and I had already talked to a couple of the doctor people that I know in our community. So the neurologist ordered the brain MRI. And fortunately my friend, also another radiologist was there at the hospital. So he was able to get her on schedule right away. And when I saw those images, I was pretty horrified. Yeah, I guess you being able to read them yourself, which I mean, I can't even imagine. I can't describe really. I just can't. Yeah. And so did you get into like doctor and mommy mode and controlling mode and like you're going to take care yeah. of everything or yeah, <laughs> I yeah. guess you're in shock. I have no idea. Right. No, I was definitely in shock. And I think that that's my way. That's, I don't really go to emotion first. I try yeah. to kind of manage and take control and make it better and fix the problem. The only issue was that I couldn't fix it. And so when I got to that place where I just sort of gave up, I felt like I had to take a different route. And maybe this was sort of like, you know, forcing me to really dig in deep and see what I could access within myself. And so when I realized she had this disease and I could no longer sort of fight it. And I think I was fighting it by trying to manage, trying to fix, and then also to blame myself if I couldn't fix it. And maybe that's just sort of like a mom tendency to blame ourselves if 
something has gone wrong with our kids, but maybe it was greater for me because I was both her mom as well as a physician, though I wasn't her physician. So it was just like such a huge burden of responsibility I felt that I put on myself and I, I just really could not fix the problem. And so <laughs> after we had a very long hospital course and we got home and I had, you well, know, she time. was in ICU for a while, right? She was, yes, because so her disease, it's an autoimmune neurological disease. It's, it's very rare, but it did affect her sort of brainstem and cranial nerves. And so she was having trouble swallowing, moving her tongue and sort of been talking and breathing really. So she was in the IC because she had trouble with all of these sort of motor actions from like her mouth to her neck. It, it just sort of in a general way to describe that. So she did develop pneumonia and then she couldn't move her right arm and she couldn't eat, speak, like I said, just extremely weakened. And so that was our hospital stay, really horrifying from the person that she was before that. Yeah. Well, she was watching you also, how you're, I mean, kids watch us. Right. They watch how, how we deal with things. And and I just, like I said, I imagine it was like really tightly wound <laughs> as so the days go, as each day right. progresses. And Oh yeah, no, you're, you're so right about that. You know, I'm, fight, I'm following her labs, her vitals, everything. And yes, yeah, so tightly wound. I couldn't sleep. It was, it was such a challenging time for me, but yes, to your point, she was definitely observing me whether or not, you know, at that point she wasn't even super responsive, but I know she could feel me, my energy, like the tension in my voice. And so by the time that we were discharged at home, you know, she was obviously more alert and really seeing me. So yes, I, and when and I, know I was, you was just relaxed, like <laughs> calm, you're like, you know, anyway, so, but yeah, I can picture it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I feel like I do have those sort of like two personalities, you know, work mode and not. So at that time, yeah, I was very wound up. And when I saw that it was sort of adversely affecting her, in fact, she told me that seeing me so stressed was making her feel bad. I knew I had to do something. And that that was the point at which I, I think I had a major intervention and I was online because this was during the pandemic. And, you know, it wasn't like I could just reach out to a therapist or just sort of, you know, go to an office to find someone to talk to. So I was online. And I think also by that time, a lot of the therapists were already booked and a lot of people were looking for that sort of mental health, right? During that stressful time. Well, we're still in the, the pandemic, not fully over, but at the heightened part of the pandemic, I think therapists were in high demand. So to make a long story short, I was online and I found life coaching. And so I wasn't really clear as to what it was, but I knew I was desperate. And so I hired one. So I learned a lot about the power of thoughts, thought work and I worked through a lot of my sort of challenges in mentally managing the situation. I guess specifically that I questioned why I was blaming myself and why I even thought that I should be able to fix it. Was that the first you ever said out loud, I think this is my fault or had you been talking about it? I hadn't been talking about it. I think there was no time to share really. You know, by the time she was in the ER and was in the hospital, everything was just high intensity and things were moving and tests were happening and procedures were happening. So it wasn't like I ever sat down with myself or with anybody else to share what was happening. But I knew in my head that I had immediately taken that on, that blame, when I saw her MRI images. And I didn't even fully know that I was carrying this weight with me until I talked about it with 
this life coach who actually is also a physician. So, I mean, to some degree, she kind of understood, you know, the way yeah. I was thinking about it, even though it wasn't quite right or healthy, really. Yeah. So what were some of the most incredible, powerful things that you learned? Well, I learned the most important thing is that I, once I become aware of my thoughts, I could see myself sort of from the outside and see myself thinking things that just weren't true and sort of questioning why I was choosing to think those things specifically in my case, why did I take on the burden of responsibility of blaming myself when, you know, she had this disease? And I think it was something along the lines of maybe I should have like thought about her diagnosis earlier. Maybe I should have brought her into the ER sooner. Maybe I should have imaged her sooner or done something a little bit more aggressive, but, you know, really in the grand scheme of things, I don't know that any of those interventions would have changed anything dramatically in the end, but yet I did still carry that with me because I just seeing her so sick made me feel like I had done something wrong as a mother. So that was, I think my most powerful realization to just sort of step back and say, well, why did I think that? And then I think what I came around to was that I chose to believe that because I just really couldn't accept the actual reality of my pain, which was that she was no longer her robustly healthy self. And I just really couldn't go there. Okay. And I know you've told me before that the biggest revelation for you was that you have a choice. Yes. Right. And you're like, what? Yes. So it does go back to that quote by Haruki Murakami. When I, when I recall that it was pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. So that just really opened up a new world of meaning to me. And so I realized that, yes, there are things in life that happen that are unavoidable. And, you know, my daughter getting sick, that was unavoidable. But, you know, that I chose my thought and that created my suffering, that was optional. But yet I created so much suffering for myself for years, really. So for people listening, how is the suffering optional? What can they do? How can they even be aware? Like, how? Yeah. Well, what I've learned. To me, I was taught it doesn't matter why. Why doesn't even matter? Like, okay, so how can we help ourselves is what's important. Right? Yeah, it's so true. Well, first, I just want to say quickly, though, when I talk about pain being unavoidable, it's part of our life experience. And when we accept it, it actually does pass. So I think in some ways, like for me, and probably for a lot of people, when we think about pain, we think that once we accept it, it's never going to go away. So the, the inclination is to try and avoid that pain. You know, and that could be done in a whole host of ways. Like I avoid, you know, daily pain with like Netflix or social media, maybe, you know, overeating, that type of thing. And the fact of the matter is though, if we really sit with our pain, it does not last. When we create our suffering and that's what happens when we resist our pain, that can last forever. And it did for me until I decided or made the realization to not suffer. Now your question is, how do you opt out of suffering? Right. I just want to, okay. So I have to interject because I've had, I was shocked. I was always told that feelings last for five minutes. And I was like, oh, I can sit for five minutes in this. And I want to hurry up and get through. I have since had a number of guests tell me they last for 90 seconds. It's the stories we attach to them. I'm like 90 seconds. I've had two very eminent Yes. Tell me 90 seconds. I'm like, yeah, I'm in 90 seconds. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, but not attaching stories. That's a, that's like a lifetime work. (laughs) Oh, I mean, that's a hundred percent spot on what you just said. Well, I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't know that it was just 90 seconds for me. I think it really like this one was a big one and maybe other sort of painful experiences 
can be a lot shorter, but it like, I, I can't define you a time frame, but it was like definitely way shorter than I thought it would be. Like once I realized it and I accepted it and I was like, oh yeah, this is what's happening. Okay. Okay. I got this. I'm not actually sure that I could quantify the time frame, yeah. but I do love what you said about the story. That is like hundred percent true. The story that we create about a situation is how we create our suffering. The story I created was that somehow I was to blame and like, I should have known better because I was a physician, that I was her mom. And I could have somehow avoided her being in the ICU. That was the story I attached to it. And I think that was unfair to myself. And so when I realized that, and I could move away from that, I, I actually did stop suffering. I mean, I, I mean, tangible results were that there was this like bizarre rash that appeared on my arms and body, which I really attribute to the stress of that. It's somehow resolved. I started sleeping better and I just looked better and I just felt better. So in all those sort of measures, I knew that I was better. And so, you know, releasing those kind of stories that create suffering and that just sort of add a layer of like greater badness, if you will, on top of the painful reality is really what I recommend you don't do. <laughs> You're probably a better mom too. Yes. Yes. So to your earlier point that I think our kids off, yeah, they do observe us and maybe model us in ways that we don't even know. She did the same. Like I could see sort of like a parallel sort of growth between us. And when I started change and I realized you know, the, the power of my thoughts and sort of like releasing those stories. I could see that Nell was observing me and either consciously or unconsciously, she was mirroring me like in my talk. And I could see that she started to consider other possibilities that, you know, although we have this disease, it doesn't define us and it doesn't make our lives bad in any way, but that there are other ways to experience life. And that's sort of like the jumping off point that we took from. Yeah, which is really beautiful. So how does somebody know what their stories are or, or the lie they're telling themselves? Yeah, oh, that's such a good question. I mean, okay, you could obviously talk about it with somebody and, you know, you could, you know, work with a therapist, a life coach, a friend, or you could write it down in a journal. And I would say for me, what I do now is I don't uh, meet with a coach regularly anymore, but I will on a sheet of paper, just write down like a situation that has happened. You know, if somebody said something to me or my, you know, Nell's labs show this, or I, I got a call from the doctor and it was this, I'll just like write down all my thoughts and mm -hmm. I'll look at them and be like, well, how does each thought make me feel? You know, is this even true? Oh my gosh, why am I even thinking this? And then see the feeling that it creates in me. And that's how I know where I want to go. Okay, so the thought that feels true, that feels like acceptance, will never have any feeling of blame and shame attached to it. The blame and shame thoughts will create suffering. So that's just a little tip. Okay, that's good. Okay, and then here's my little tip, because this is something I need. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times I don't know how I feel. Yeah. So, because yeah. we didn't talk about feelings growing up. So I Google feelings list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and yeah. there's so many, there's so many choices. And so I'll be like, yeah, it's that one. Yeah. <laughs> we or, didn't talk about them growing up. So I'm like, I need help. I need a cheat sheet. Yeah. You know, that's so, that's so funny that you mentioned that because I do coach a lot of folks who are similar to me. And it's funny how people have really moved away from emotion and it is much more difficult to access than we would think. But I will tell you this, if you can't think of an emotion to describe 
whatever you're feeling at that time in response to a thought, you could just write either plus or minus. Like, does it feel good or bad? Yeah. I don't like to go to judgment though. Oh, that's and, true. That's uh, true. Yeah. So I go, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm much better now because I've had a lot more practice, but when yes. I started doing this, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I could do happy and sad. I could do yeah. that kind of a thing. I could go in those directions and I, I could do the nuances now. And um, yeah. I could make fun of men too, because I don't think they have yeah. as many as we do. I've actually read they don't. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for me, sometimes it's just like even a bodily manifestation. Sometimes thoughts that make my abdomen feel tight, it's like tension. And I know that that's not a feeling or yeah, a feeling that I want to hold on to. Whereas there are other thoughts that make me feel relaxed and I feel like, okay, that feels like acceptance. And so that's an indication. If you can't attach an emotional word to it, maybe just a bodily manifestation. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And I like feeling open. Yes. I like Clo that kind of stuff. Closed or open. I love it. Just keep yeah. it simple. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, I'm like, okay, I'm liking that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's really good. So what is the hardest thing that you've been through? And I would imagine it's this and how uh, did you get through it? <laughs> yeah, it, this is definitely the hardest thing I've been through. How did I get through it? I think just sitting down with my thoughts. For me, I think the first touch point was discovering the life coach that helped me a lot and understanding that I can choose my thoughts, that they don't just happen to me and they're not just a fact of my situation. And what tools do you use? You were talking about journaling and no. do you meditate? Do you exercise? Do you have certain things that, that like, I have to do this when you talk to your husband yeah. Your friends. What do yeah. You okay. So I do journal and exercise for sure. Definitely. And then do you still practice? How did you end up? I mean, now you're, you're a coach yourself, right? Yes. So I'm in sort of a transition period. I'm still doing some of the radiology, but I'm getting more involved in my daughter's disease foundation. And I'm, I want to get more involved in rare disease advocacy. And I really do enjoy the coaching. And incidentally, when I do coach other people, it does feel like it's a reciprocal experience. And I do feel like I help myself because a lot of people experience very similar things. Yeah, that's what it's always about when we give to others. I, I find the same kind of experience. And I just, I love that your daughter wrote a book. I, I have to say it again. Yeah. When I first went online and, and saw her book and read it, it's so incredible. It's just, oh, it's so moving. It's so incredible. And it's so good. And she's oh. such an old soul. Oh, it's, she is. It's just such an incredible, incredible book. So I have to mention it about how moved I was by um, Nell's book which all yeah. the money goes to children's Mother. national. Yeah, it does. Yeah, hospital, it does. So mm -hmm. have you found that your friends, you have some friends that were like, Oh my God, I don't know how to deal with this. And they went away or did everybody just kind of clump on? Well, it was a pandemic. So everybody was really isolated. Do you have new friends? Because now that you, I mean, mm -hmm. we evolve, we change and we start vibrating at a higher frequency and we start attracting these really incredible people that are so yeah. open. How has that changed for you? As I was saying before, once I started to sort of evolve my thoughts, I could see possibilities happening. And we connected with these major foundations, which for a rare disease is incredible that more than one exists and they're amazing. Yeah. So once we did that, it was like a world of amazing, loving people who want to change the world. And so, yes, 
we did sort of, I guess, attract, you know, an amazing inspirational group through the foundation. And I love working with them. So that's one. They're fantastic nurses and caregivers and physicians in the children's hospital networks in our, in our country, which are fantastic. And we're connected to them through the foundation and on Facebook groups. So that's just been fantastic. As for you know, our community of friends in our area, I think that they've all been really supportive and they still, you know, through the pandemic, people would drop off food and really just give us a lot of support through texts and like videos and cards. So I would say all of that. It was like our world just expanded with love and just amazing people coming into our lives. So, yeah, I, I just love that. Do you have a message of hope you want to give? Yeah, I, I think my message is, just that, you know, life will definitely take you on many detours. And I guess just not to be afraid of it or resist it and that know that you can always find your way back and you can start by becoming aware of the thoughts you have in response to your painful reality. Yeah, definitely. And you'll get through it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's so much on the other side of it if you do actually go through the pain, but it wasn't as long as I thought. Yeah. No. And well, each time it'll last however long, right? <laughs> um, Management. Yeah. It's, it's more manageable, I think, than we think in our head. Yeah, definitely. And the only way through is through. So true. <laughs> oh, that was great. Thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. And all of Maggie's links, including her upcoming TED Talk, yay, will be on the website. Yes. And and if I know you mentioned Nell's book, I appreciate that. The title of the book is called My Hospital Story. Yeah, it's it is so good, so readable. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Maggie's messages to remind yourself that this too shall pass, that your thoughts don't have to own you, and also that you can rewrite the narrative in your head anytime you want. Remember, whatever you focus on grows, and when you focus on what's good and working in your life, you get to attract more of that into your life. Be sure to tune in next week for another empowering episode all about overcoming challenges, confidence, and how to take that next step staying aligned with your true self. It's a great episode next week. There's a quiz on the website, When Do You Self-Sabotage? That's really fun. It's a good quiz. Very informative. That's at 52weeksofhope.com, the number 52weeksofhope.com. Don't forget to give yourself patience, compassion, and grace this week. Treat yourself like you would your best friend, or at least your dog. Be kind and loving. If you're enjoying the podcast, share the love and tell two of your friends. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening. 